From the LA Times studios, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American celebrity about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm Frank Xiong. And I'm Jen Yamato. This week on episode 10 of our podcast, we're joined by the actor Dante Bosco, who's best known, or maybe more like worshipped, for playing Rufio, a very ill-mannered young man, a lewd, crude, rude bag of pre-chewed food dude, and the leader of the Lost Boys in the 1991 movie, Hook. They named their kids after Rufio and their dogs after Rufio, and it means something to just the people at large as far as like this rebel spirit, you know? And then it means something completely different to like a whole generation of Asian Americans. So we'll talk about how he got that part, what it was like growing up in a breakdancing crew, and how to make space for Filipinos in Hollywood. That's all coming up next. Asian Enough is presented by Little America, now streaming exclusively on Apple TV Plus in the TV app on all iOS devices and TV app-supported devices. This advertiser has no influence over editorial decisions or content. You probably know him best as Rufio, the leader of the Lost Boys in the 90s cult classic film Hook. But Dante Bosco's career in Hollywood has spanned 30 years, and he's worn so many hats over the over the course of that time. Dante, welcome to Asian Enough. Yo, what's up? How y'all doing? <laughs> Good. Great. Yeah, Happy to be driving here. to El Segundo. Hey, man, I left my wallet in El Segundo. <laughs> <laughs> we okay. like that joke around here. <laughs> yeah, of course. Although I don't think Q-Tip was talking about this El Segundo. No, I don't wasn't. know what El Segundo he was what? talking about. I don't know. Either. He wasn't talking about this El Segundo. I feel yeah. like everyone who is in this El Segundo think, proudly claims it. Yeah, of course, <laughs> but I don't think he was talking about this El Segundo. I think you read it. I read it in an interview once that he just saw it on a map or something. Like he was going by LAX and he thought it'd be a funny place to leave his wallet or something. But, That's yeah. funny. And now it's, now it's now it's now it's affluent El Segundo, hard to buy a house out here. Home oh, of you the tried? Los Angeles <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I've I've looked as well. It's not uh, it's not happening. <laughs> well, Dante, okay, Hook the 1991 cult favorite reimagining of the Peter Pan lore starring Robin Williams and Dante Bosco. Hey. You are, I'm just going to cut right to it. Yeah. You are an icon. Come a on. cultural icon. You are, man. And you have been ever since this this role, Rufio, and uh, we have so many questions for you, but that's yeah. where we're going to start is what has Rufio meant to you over the course of this time? I mean, it's changed, right? Over the years, I, I I did Rufio when I was 15. I started acting when I was 10. Before I was an actor, I was in, uh, I'm from the, me and my brothers from the Bay Area, right? And we're all artists and actors and musicians and poets. And we started as a breakdancing group in the Bay Area called the Street Freaks. We were popular b-boys in the Bay. It's like I'm a Bay Area kid, you know. We grew up going to 49ers games and Oakland A's games, and we ended up dancing for the 49ers and the Oakland A's halftime uh-huh. shows, third inning, fourth inning, sixth inning, you know, that kind of stuff. Then we then we got scholarships, the ballet company, started to go ballet. And so we started studying ballet and it was like a real Billy Elliot thing, kids from the yeah. street that they picked up and started the world of the arts. And so like being an actor and an artist has been in my family's story since my earliest memories of whatever we were doing, you know? And so by the time I was 15 and did a hook, it was like, 
I mean, I was, you know, somewhat prepared for it because I was studying acting for so long and studying the greats. And then I was very much aware I was working with greats. Mm. You know, you're working with Spielberg, maybe at the height of his powers. Dustin Hoffman, who's, you know, he's on the Mount Rushmore of the actors that changed the face of acting in the 70s and whatnot. You got Robin Williams, who's mm. the godfather of improv acting and one of the great, you know. I mean, the list goes on, Maggie Smith, I'm always said, Bob Hoskins. It's like every day is like, what's going on here? And so I was really prepared to just really do a a great job. Um, But that never prepares you for a character lasting 25 years later where it's like now. I've been Rufio (laughs) longer than I have been Rufio. You know what I'm saying? That's crazy. And then, you know, you walk around and now it's like it means something different to a whole generation. There's people with tattoos of your 15-year-old face on their body. Mm. crazy which you've seen with your own eyes which I've seen with my own eyes I've signed people's bodies at comic cons and they just tattooed it on you know and they named their kids after Rufio and their dogs after Rufio and it means something to just the people at large as far as like this rebel spirit you know and then it means something completely different to like a whole generation of Asian Americans where I get a lot of like you're the first cool Asian that I ever saw on film and television. That's exactly what I was about to say to you. And I'm dismayed that you hear it so often. But yeah. like, <laughs> no, I hear it. And again, when you're young, you don't really think about it. When you do a big movie and you're a teenager, like even though I was like a trained actor and a pretty solid artist in my own right, at 15, it's like, I just want to be cool. Like, please, at the, for the love of God, <laughs> can it come out on Friday in the theaters? And when I go to school on Monday, can like some people think I'm cool? <laughs> were you were you going to school at that point in in Southern California? I was going to school in Southern California. I was in high school. I uh, lived in a town called Paramount, and it's right you know right next to Compton. The crazy thing was this is the '90s, and we got into some trouble. Me and my brothers in the middle of shooting Hook, we got caught shoplifting at the Cerritos Mall. No way. Yes. What'd way. you take? I needed some isotoner gloves. <laughs> we all do. I needed some isotoner gloves. We all do, yeah, yeah. What do you need those gloves for? In <laughs> Southern California, I don't know. Jerry Rice wore them. <laughs> I don't know. Had some isotoner. But anyway, we got caught. My parents got so mad. And, and again, when you're growing up in the neighborhood in Paramount, which is like, it's like Compton, but it's more Mexican than black. And it's, you know, there's gang violence. It's the 90s. And we had friends running drugs, everything. There's a lot going on. So it's like, in your young mind, like shoplifting is like nowhere near anything else going on in the neighborhood. But we got popped and we got in trouble and I was actually in the middle of shooting Hook, which is super strange. And the guy that caught us in Cerritos Mall was like watching me because he had seen me in a movie called Perfect Weapon. He's like, that's that dude from Perfect Weapon. And then, oh my God, these dudes are stealing isotoner gloves. Wow. (laughs) Uh, But so we ended up getting bused to Orange County and started and finished our school at Orange County High School of the Arts. And then I was there when the Hook came out. So it's kind of like I was a new kid in school and the movie came out. And I went from a school that was like predominantly black and Latino to a school in Orange County that was, I think there was 12 black kids in school. Mm-hmm. And like, it was like predominantly white. We were like, what are we doing here? So that was the school that was that you were in when, you, when Hook was coming out? Yeah, that was the school I was in when Hook okay. came out. And that was, that was fascinating. Cool? They thought I was cool. I mean, <laughs> we were cool. Our hair was, me and my brothers were like three brown brothers walking around campus with high hair. And just, you know, super hip-hop kids. And then, you know, a big movie comes out. And you're like, that's that kid from that movie. I kind of always wish I was in my old school when it came out. Because then, you know, you get the extra. Mm, You want to flex on the hometown. (laughs) Yeah, but then you're in a new school. And it's all weird already. It's like, now it's super weird. Yeah. 
I was just wondering, because being known as Rufio, having people shout it to you on the street, and yeah. you know, I, I mean, I'm sure you've gotten to this point where you celebrate it and you lean into it, but like, when was there ever a moment where it was kind of like annoying? Like, I'll give you an example. Like, yeah. I wrote about the factory that produces sriracha and Irwindale was producing smells that seemed to irritate some neighbors and it took about six months of my life. You know that, right? Yeah, I know the story. It's an amazing then, story. Yeah, I broke that story oh, and, wow. and, and for a while everyone knew I read me that as, story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone knew me as the hot sauce guy and I would appear on TV and, and they, once they made the title cards uh, too hot to handle and I was just like really sweaty. And, yeah. and, and so so like every time I, I everyone's like, it's a Sriracha guy. And yeah. it was just kind of like, I appreciate the success and being known, but also I, I'm a beautiful like journalism butterfly, you know, recognize yeah. all my patterns or whatever. And yeah. do all these different things. Yeah. You know? With time, you kind of get more graceful with it. Like it's a blessing and a curse, right? Every actor that comes to town wants to hopefully do something that they'll be remembered for, right? Everyone. And and the fact of the matter is 99% or more are not going to get that opportunity. I mean, or that's just not going to happen for them because that's the luck of Hollywood, right? The luck of Hollywood, people always, always get it misconceived. It's like to get good is not lucky. That's your job, get good. The luck is having the right timing that someone wrote a character a year ago, a month ago, that's perfect for you right now. And somehow you got to read for it and you beat all the people out for that particular character. And then you and that character intersect at the right time that an audience out there in the world care about it. Because there's so many great performances that go on that just miss timing-wise. And and sometimes the right character, the right actor, the right moment comes and, and, and something happens and all of a sudden that has impact. And, and that's the luck, right? And we all hope sometime in our careers that we get to do a character like that. I've been fortunate with, with Rufio. I mean, it happened again years later when I did Prince Zuko in mm-hmm. Avatar The Last Airbender where it's like, people are like, how do you do these iconic characters? And and I don't know. I mean, part of me is like, it's just dumb luck. I, and I also understand like, there's a lot of work and stuff that we got into, but we've, we've done a lot of hard work on a lot of different projects and they don't all impact in the same way. And no one knew that these characters are going to impact the way they did. Well, when you were cast, how did how did that come about? Like, you had started out as a dancer. Right. One of your first credits is in Moonwalker? Yeah, yeah. Me and my little brother Dion, we were in Moonwalker. I was actually his understudy in Moonwalker. And we did the bad video, mm-hmm. but we did the, the kid bad video. I'm friends with a lot of those kids still today. I mean, Marissa Tantrum was in the video. She's like the executive producer, showrunner of, of uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. Uh-huh. We've, known, we've known each other since we were like 12, you know? The way dancing works, you have the cast and you have to have a cast like exact behind them because people get hurt all the time when you dance so we did that when we were young we were, we were dancers when we came to LA but when I did Hook the pretty remarkable thing about Hook is so my little brother Dion had an audition for another character in the movie and I remember calling my managers when he got the audition because we were like oh, you gotta give me an audition for this movie because you know the one thing we knew is it's Robin Williams playing a grown up Peter Pan and you're like that had captured the imagination of the world like oh my God, like Robin Williams is Peter Pan. That's who he is. And so we were all excited about the movie and Spielberg and and whatnot. And so I ended up getting an audition for this other character, Rufio. We we didn't know who any of these characters are. And then my other brother, Darian, got an audition for Rufio too. So we both went in together. This is the thing about (laughs) being brothers in LA and acting is we've all auditioned and we continue to audition against each other to this day. And it's like, it was just a TV show, like, last season where they're like, oh, it's between you and your brother, Darren. You're, like, both on the board. Like, whatever. Like, hope one, you know, one of us is going to get it, so good luck. But we've all trained together, and through the years, you kind of go through the process and understand that 
you're not really in competition with each other, you know. But uh, we've been through a lot as brothers, and it's different these days. Yeah, it almost be really close. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to be an Asian actor. In, it's hard to be an yeah. actor in L.A. I always say it's hard to be an actor in L.A. It's probably one of the hardest jobs in the world as far as to work. And then on top of that, it's hard to be an ethnic actor in L.A. And within the ethnic spectrum, it's hard to be Asian mm-hmm. <laughs> in that ethnic spectrum. And even within the Asian spectrum, to be Filipino, that particular Asian is super strange to people because they're like, are you, what kind of Asian are you? You're not the Asians that we wrote this role for. You're like a brown skin kind of. Why are you so tan? Why are you so tan? (laughs) And then even within that little like Filipino, it's like, it's, you know, I'm one of four brothers that are like very close in age. Like you're the Bosco brothers. Like that are all performers. That are all performers Mm -hmm. that were all here in the audition. So I've lived a very unique experience, Mm -hmm. except for I have brothers that lived it with me. Well, we are definitely going to ask you about one of the few experiences you had playing a specific Filipino-American character in the great debut. Yeah, the debut. Um, But first, I want to ask you, while we're living in this hook moment, your audition, you've said before that in a way your upbringing in Paramount helped you in that audition. Yeah. How so? The unique thing about that particular project is uh, I went in, me and my brother both went in, we put the auditions on tape with the with the cast director Jen Hershenson. There's a picture of us that day too. We both dressed up like how we thought Lost was dressed up. I remember like bracelets on this weird like floral shirt. <laughs> and so uh, we had the audition, and then I got a call back. Like they called my my manager and like, oh, so Steven Spielberg wants to meet you. So I went to Amblin, which is on the Universal lot, and the whole lot's like all gray. But then there's like this one section. It's like Spanish villas. Like that's Steven Spielberg's offices. And we went there, and this is like before huh. PS4, Nintendo's like he had like a mall arcade in his office, which is crazy. And so we were there playing video games, and he brings me in, and then he doesn't even audition me again. We just talk. We talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about Ratso Rizzo, and I, I talked about Dustin Hoffman because I knew he was playing Hook at that time. And we talked about films. We talked about other things I did. And then I was like, do you want me to read? And he's like, no, no, you're good. I just wanted to meet you. And I was like, what? And I walked out. My mom was like, how'd it go? I was like, I don't think I got it. Like, I didn't even read, you know? And then a few days later, they offered me the part, which is wild. So I only read the part one time. And when I was on the set, I remember I was sitting by the pirate ship. And I was like, hey, Steven, like, I never auditioned, like, read the role one time. And and someone offered me the job. Like, how did that happen? And uh, Steven was like, yeah, Dante, like, out of all the kids we auditioned, you're the only kid that scared me. <laughs> and, but, you know, when I think about it now, it's like, I'm living in Paramount, right? Mm. And this is 91. You know, kids were getting shot in my school, like my best friend, like, one of our friends got killed, his girlfriend. There was, like, guns everywhere and drugs. And, we, you know, there's, there's, like, life and death situations going on every day. There was, like, a big race war, blacks versus the Mexicans, and they're like, where, where, what side are you on? And like, yo, we, we need to get out of here at lunch or like, you know, it's going down. And when you're dealing with like that kind of environment, I mean, to a degree, the Lost Boys are a gang. I just was the leader of the gang. And so I think some of that was, you know, brought to the surface when doing the character. And I think that kind of resonated with, with Steven. So I think that kind of helped my the whole That's performance. Fascinating. I, I, when I read that, I was like, what did, what did you do to scare Steven Spielberg? You know? Yeah, I don't think I was scared of it. It's just like, you know, it's like Lord of the Flies kind of stuff. It's like kids that are, I mean, we're very aware of the ups and downs and that. I don't know where kids are now with gangs. And it's like, I'm not in the neighborhood anymore. It's like, I live in Beverly Hills. I still, my mom lives out there and stuff, but I, I'm not like running in the in the streets like that. But, you know, it was real. 91, 
92. Not that I was in a gang, but we all were in that lifestyle. It's like NWA was like the biggest group out there. Mm-hmm. Snoop grew up in Long Beach down the street. NWA was coming to our football games. We had a really great football team. We were all wearing Dickies and Ben Davises and Pendletons. Like, whether you're in a gang or not, we all looked like we were in a gang. And we were all in the life, you know what I'm saying? No matter where you were, you claimed your town. Like, it was a different era where, like, something could pop off at any time. And and people were actually getting killed. So it's like what we were exposed to. I feel like even for me as a kid watching Hook, you could tell Rufio knew about life. Rufio just seemed tougher than everybody else. Also, but it's such a beautifully emotional performance Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. There's so much stuff that happens to him over the course of that movie. Hey, I appreciate that. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he was like the toughest, most intimidating, but also like the most fun too. It's funny because I don't really watch. I mean, I watched it. I haven't Mm -hmm. watched it in years. And then on the anniversary, I went and watched it with with the writer and producer, J.V. Hart. It was interesting to see like you as a kid, like going through some stuff is fascinating. Yeah. Was it written for a Filipino person? No. Or like, what, what did the did the character description have any ethnicity attached to it? No. I mean, originally, no. I mean, they were thinking maybe it was Jamaican or black. There's a lot of things that are Jamaican, like Bangarang, and that's Jamaican. And there's like there's a line in there like "You're dead, Jellyman." That's like that's like Jamaican stuff that was going on. But then originally, I heard originally like a white kid got cast. They replaced him with me. The thing about it being an ethnic actor to kind of scale in this town at least before the Crazy Rich Asian era, it's like you have to beat white kids and black kids out of white and black roles. Because the roles that they're writing for us, it's not enough. Two lines of some perspective that's not really even three-dimensional. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, people are like, how did you do this in your career? I was like, well, it's that old saying. that Look, every ethnic kid in L.A. knows their mom said, like, you got to be better than the white kids. That's the only way. Did your mom say something to that effect? It was implied. Mm. Like, you can't just think you're going to get everything. To win is like, you got to beat everybody else. Mm. Plus, we grew up as break dancers. So when we're in the streets of San Francisco, we were battle dancers. Like, when you're eight, nine, seven, like, I didn't get, I came to LA when I was 10. So all that stuff in the Bay Area happened before I was 10, right? Ballet, 49ers, Oakland A's. Like, we were doing all that before I was 10. But when you're in the streets, you're doing your routines and we're we're doing just breakdance competitions every weekend. And then you're battling people you don't know. I mean, it sounds funny because you're watching these movies now, like, you know, street, like dance fighting and stuff like that. But it's like when you're a kid like that is like fighting. Like you are going up against people you don't know and you're showing out in front of like hundreds or thousands of people sometimes. That kind of helped with acting too because like every audition is like a battle. Yo, when it's your time to shine, like, mm. it's like you got... This is the time you got. Go. There's enough uncertainty to go around these days, especially if you own a business. Luckily, NetSuite reduces it by giving you visibility and control. With so many critical decisions to make, you need the right numbers and you need them right now. NetSuite by Oracle is the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you get financials, cash flow, payroll, inventory, and more, all in one place. So you have clear visibility and total control of your business. NetSuite customers have the flexibility to work from anywhere, with immediate clarity on critical information right at their fingertips. No more guessing, no more waiting. Make smarter decisions with confidence, because you've got crystal clear visibility into your numbers. 
It's time to join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to stay in control. Don't wait to get your free guide and schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com slash enough. That's netsuite.com slash enough. NetSuite. Business grows here. Asian Enough is presented by Little America, the acclaimed comedy series now streaming exclusively on Apple TV+, for your Emmy Awards consideration. Inspired by the true stories featured in Epic Magazine, Little America goes beyond the headlines and looks at the funny, romantic, heartfelt, inspiring, and surprising stories of immigrants in America, and they're more relevant now than ever. Episodes include The Cowboy, where a Nigerian student finds a sense of connection through Oklahoma's cowboy culture, and The Jaguar, where an undocumented high school student's life is changed by an urban squash coach. Apple TV Plus is available on the Apple TV app on iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, iPod Touch, Mac, select Samsung and LG smart TVs, Amazon Fire TV and Roku devices, as well as at tv.apple.com for $4.99 per month with a seven-day free trial. Customers who purchase a new iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Mac, or iPod Touch can enjoy one year of Apple TV Plus for free. Get Apple TV Plus and stream all of Little America today. You've said something to the effect of my story is my family's story. Yeah. Like, what does that mean when you say that? Do you Are you talking about, like, your family's history? I mean, I recently wrote a book. It's called From Rufio to Zuko. I was very cautious about it, you know, because this publishing house came to me. And they were like, we want, we want your story. And I was like, what do you mean, my autobiography? Like, yes, yeah, your memoir. And I'm like, I'm way too young to write this. But then Daniel Lisi, who owns the publishing house, was like, we basically want— a perspective on Hollywood through the eyes of Asian American. And they're like, you're the kid who we all grew up with. I think you'd have a cool story. And I like that that take on it. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And then when I sat down to write it, you know, because it's it's not just my story. My story is my family story because it's really us coming to L.A. together, not knowing anybody, this little tribe of artists and our ups and downs and mistakes and a lot of, you know, a lot of beautiful things happen. There's a lot of dark, crazy things happen. I mean, we all have our own Everyone who's been in this town for over 10-plus years is, has their own e-true Hollywood story. Nothing comes for free out here. And it's like, so some of the things that happened to me, my family's just like, if it happened to me, it happened to all of us. So it's like, I was very cautious in telling the story because there's some things that for me to say, and there's probably some things that for them to say, but even though it affected me, you know, it's great to come to L.A. with some of the closest people, like my brothers, my sister, and they're going on this journey with you, right? It's also hard because... Most of the people come to town, get off a plane, train, whatever, and they're by themselves, and it's, it's just them against the world. And there's something powerful in that, and they do their own thing. And then, But for me, I had the comfort of having my family around me, but then also there's a lot there too because it's like Pressure. the pressure's yeah. there for you to win. The to people represent. you love have to lose. You know what I'm saying? Like with, like with Rufio, it's like I'm looking at one of my closest brother's best friends. It's like for me to win, it's like you, you're not going to get it. You know, and and get, and and to deal with that growing up and going, damn, that's like so crazy. Like I don't have to just worry about my career; I'm worrying about their careers at the same time, and vice versa. So uh, there's a blessing and a curse in both of all that. But my story is my family story. Do you feel like those close relationships helped you? You're in LA after a hook. You're going out for other projects after this. Like, what was that experience like? And 
Yeah, it's it does help because when you when you're doing a film like Hook and you're like with Spielberg and and all these guys, it's it's a platform. It's like an introduction to LA in a way, into Hollywood in a way. It gives you something different, right? It's interesting at the time because my agency at the time was like, "Wow, you just did the biggest movie in the city," and it's like because you're like Asian, it's like there's no roles for you. There's like the craziest thing was like, "Wow, there's no roles. You're this really talented actor." If you were white or you were black, you would have a whole different career. Yeah. yeah what do you do with that? When you I mean, that? you look at me like, well, what? You, I mean, there's nothing. Either you kind of go into despair and be like, hey, woe is me. Or you just continue to work. And the thing is, you just continue to work. and You continue to do your art. And you look back and you understand, like, the career of what you've done, right? And there's things I've done in film and television that I really love. And, I, you know, I really became a part of Black Hollywood, especially for the 90s, and did all the shows from Oisha to Steve Harvey to Biker Boys. and Because when you're not white, you're black, and especially in Hollywood. And so I was accepted within that circle vibrantly, and like, which is great. Now with a lot of, like, how the Asian thing has exploded, people are like, wow, you know, the first hip-hop Asian, like, that was you. You yeah. walked in the room, you're like— that we're pretty much that's the Dante Bosco type. Well, and yeah. I feel like growing up in the LA area and growing up before that in the Bay Area. Yeah. I think growing up in the Bay and having that as my foundation. First of all, Asians run the Bay. It's fascinating. Bay Area And Filipinos in my small town of Pittsburgh, California, where I'm from, like they ran like this little town called Pittsburgh, California. It's like East Bay. It's like in the cuts. We have our own BART station now, though. So. That's some. <laughs> I used to play Pittsburgh girls in soccer. Oh, yeah. So okay, know. cool. They're always very tough. They're tough. tough it was a tough little town. Cool. It was like, it was settled by like Italians and then Filipinos and Mexicans, African-Americans, like a lot of World War II vets. And so they started this Filipino organization up there, Filipino-American organization. That's where we grew up dancing, doing parties. Your grandparents did? My grandparents were a part of that whole generation. Like my grandfather was a president for a few years. My dad was vice president for a few years. Like all my uncles and aunts were like, we're all involved in it. So we were like, you know, when you're young, you don't even realize like you're Filipino. It's like all these people are just all your uncles and aunts or extended uncles and aunts. And then you look back and, you, and your child, you're like, damn, they're all Filipino. Like, who? what? Well, one place you're not seeing all those Filipino faces at this time is in movies and yeah. TV. It's, and then comes along a film called The Debut. Yes. Yeah. I'm so curious about why you decided to do The Debut like when you did, like you've said a little bit like about how you were playing all the Asian characters, but there's no Filipino characters. Yeah, that was the first time I got to play Filipino, which yeah. is crazy. And at that time, I'd been acting for at least 10 years, right? It was like pretty much the first Filipino-American film in Hollywood, indie, an indie film, but like pretty much the first one ever being produced. And the debut was a 2001 movie about a Filipino-American high schooler kind of struggling against his family's expectations over the course of a night. And he's kind of like choosing between... You know, his friends and yeah. his family a little bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Asian-American conflict. Yeah, yeah. The Asian-American conflict directed by Gene Kahayan, written by Gene and John Castro. Shout out to those guys. You know, it's one of those things like kind of like a no-brainer to a lot of people. Like, you're doing a Filipino film. Like, you got to get you got to get Dante Bosco to play. <laughs> Which worked out, except for when I read the script, he wasn't really the character. Like, I was, we had a rap band and. I was definitely within, like, kind of hip-hop world. And the character was, like, more of a straight-laced... It's kind of goody-two-shoes. Goody-two-shoes. Yeah. Like, he was... In the movie, they call him um, Coconut. Brown on the outside, white on the inside. So he was that kind of character. And it's like, that's, you know, the director at first was like, well, Dante, you're not really 
that you're really like maybe like the bad boy character Gusto, which I really that's probably was really my more more my casting. But the way things played out, I was like, no, you got to get Dante to play the lead. And so I did. And then they cast my brother, Darian, to play Augusto, which he's amazing. You guys movie. have a really good fight scene. A great fight scene. I mean, all my brothers are in the movie. Derek's in it. And Dia. It's like seeing my family. My sister's in the movie. I mean, to do it and see my family, literally see my family on screen together is amazing. And then to figuratively see my family as far as like mm-hmm. the images of my grandparents and, you know, my uncles and aunt, your family on screen it was a beautiful thing. It was one of those really great experiences and, and one of the movies I'm like really proud of. And so weird. It's like one of those movies that kids study in college, like Asian American studies. Yeah, it's super underrated though. Super underrated. It's just like a coming of age. It's it's a little bit like Better Luck Tomorrow was for like yeah. a bunch of East Asians or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it was in 2001. Yeah. It was all the same right around the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Roger yeah. Ebert championed both of those films. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to Roger Ebert, man. Rest in peace. Mm. I actually went to Chicago. I met some people that work for him. And it's like, yeah, he loved your movie. I was like, yeah, man. And he just had an affinity towards, I guess, that film. And I think Hawaii, he goes to Hawaiian film festivals a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, again, the Hawaii, like the Bay Area, has things like Pan-Asians. Like, it's the places, like, if you're Asian in America— I always tell people, like, you need to spend time in the Bay, and you need to spend time in Hawaii. I love going to Hawaii. You go to Hawaii. I feel like a white person in Hawaii. Uh, yeah, because it's, <laughs> if you go to Hawaii, and I'm I'm partners in a company out there, Kinetic Films with James Serino, and we produced a few films out of Hawaii. There's got to be a place in the world you where you don't feel like a minority. Because yes. in America, growing up as a minority, you're, you like it or not, you're, 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 you're comparing yourself to other palettes, whether it's a white canvas or a black canvas or a Latino canvas. Like, where do we fit in? It's like... We're always comparing ourselves to that. And Hawaii is probably the only place in the world that Asian Americans, not Asians, for, it's not like us. It's great to go to Hong Kong. It's great to go to Manila. It's great to go to Tokyo. We're still foreigners in those places. And it's definitely like we're welcomed, but you're like, mm, you're American. Did you yeah. think about a lot of these sort of topics of identity and negotiations, like the one your character has in the debut? Did you did you think about those sort of things in relation to your own life growing up? Uh. Definitely. I mean, after we left Pittsburgh, which is was very, you know, there's a lot of Filipinos in Pittsburgh and kids we all grew up with where you don't think about race or anything. You don't, I think every ethnic person in America, they know the moment when they, they know they're not white in America. There's like, there's a moment that happens and it comes like somewhere around junior high, right? I think I was like in seventh, sixth grade, sixth or seventh grade. And you're like looking at my neighbor, like Steve Myers, like, oh damn, you like, you're white <laughs> and I'm not. Whoa. And it's and that's kind of a shaking thing where it's just like things start to like change, like, whoa, like how do people see me? Like they're not seeing because it's, it's what happens when you're young is you just see people and it's like your dad, like you don't see your dad as a race. He's your dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? It only is like as an adult, like, oh my God, I just realized my dad's Filipino because he's just always just been dad because you actually see who he is yeah. and you see your friends at young age for who they are mm-hmm. but then when you start seeing identity and race it's like you see that first and then you got to break through that to actually see who someone is again and it's so crazy 
Yeah, there's this moment where the sort of programming of race clicks on. I was like in sixth grade and everyone had to bring in food, right? And my parents brought in fried rice and everyone flipped out and they were like, oh, I love fried rice. And I was like, wow, okay. Wow. Well, and Frank grew up in Tennessee. (laughs) Yeah, I grew up in Tennessee. Yo, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. These are not heavily Asian populated No, no, I was the only Asian kid in in my high school. So being Asian was like my thing. And then I came out to LA and I was like, oh, I got to get a new thing. So many, so many Asians out here, you know. What's so, it like being the only Asian in the area? Uh, you know, it kind of sucked. Like, I wanted to go. My parents had a lot of sort of, like, mistreatment at work. And, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that kind of makes me cringe to think about, you know, because you, you definitely have to, like, explain yourself to people. And you have to, like, work your personality around right. their stereotypes, you know. Yeah, so I was weird, basically. <laughs> yeah. I, I think for me, it was around the same age, actually, like 11, 12. Right there. It's That's when right you there. realize that the world outside of you sees you in a certain way. That's how it was for me. Right. So we wanted to ask you about your foray into directing. Yeah. Tell us about that project, The Fabulous Filipino Brothers. Yeah, so I, I finally directed my first film, The Fabulous Filipino Brothers. And um, it's fascinating because I probably produced like seven films now, I think. And this is the first time I'm directing. Uh, it's a film I, I wrote uh, with my brother Darian originally. And then my brother Dion came in for some rewrites. My sister Ariana came in for some rewrites. And uh, it's just the right time. It's, it's a film that I pitched. Um, I got it funded out of the Philippines. Part of this whole kind of new Asian media thing we're doing. You know, I pitched it out of this story like, I pitched it as, like, my big, fat Greek wedding, like, Filipino style meets Pulp Fiction. But, oh. but not, like, the, not the violence of Pulp Fiction, but the <laughs> calamity of Pulp Fiction and, the, and the, the vignettes of Pulp Fiction. So it's four brothers, four vignettes, and they're my real brothers. It's just, like, a linear story told out of order around a Filipino wedding. So it's just, like, really indie, kind of weird, cool thing. Personal? Does it feel a personal story? Every story is based on stories from my family. It's not autobiographical necessarily, but it's all, every vignette's based in truth, even though it's far-fetched. And why did you want to do that at this time, this type of movie at this time? In a lot of ways, the biggest thing is a platform for, like, me and my brothers. I'm going to direct sooner or later. If I'm going to direct something, I'm going to create a platform. You know, you create a platform, a story, and it's like, I wanted to create something for my brothers. They're amazing, amazing actors. Like, my whole career, we've been all together. They're wonderful actors on their own right and have, like, really beautiful careers. They haven't had some of the good fortune of some of the characters I've had, right? The things I've seen them do that Hollywood has not let them do yet, if I'm directing, you guys get to do it. And so, um, yeah, so, like, they all get to star in their own vignette. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be fun. There's actually another family member who's an actor in your larger family that I'm really excited to see. Yeah. Your niece, Ella J. Ella J. Bosco. Bosco. Yes, she's coming out <laughs> in uh, Birds of Prey, playing Cassandra Kane. A lot of fans are like, how do you Boscos do that? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. And I, it's been really special to me because she's my niece. She's my older brother, Derek's daughter, but she's also my goddaughter. So, um, you know, she calls me Ninong in Filipino. That's godfather. So it's like, we always had a special connection. And then just in the last year, bringing her, her to events and being like, you know, getting to introduce her to a town that I grew up in as like, this is the next generation of Boscos. And it's really beautiful. She's so beautiful and graceful. She's like the, and she's like classic oldest sister. Like she's really kind of like smart and like, you know, she's like the classic, right? Were there things that you felt like you needed to impart to her? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's just trying to instill like 
what we've been through mm-hmm. and and try to avoid some of those mistakes. But she's she's pretty got her head on pretty good. And th- there's other ones coming. I mean, Deuce, her little brother. I mean, little sassy Emerson's <laughs> coming. Yes. She's doing. She's already done like 20 you commercials. Whole movie. She's great. And then there's like the the Aurora. There's like other cousins. My <laughs> sister's kids. Aurora and, and Phoenix. Like, there's a whole another wave of Bosco's coming. And some coming from the Bay, too, musically. It's going to be cool. It's going to be cool. It is that time in our program when we ask our guests for their bad Asian confession. So, Dante, we basically hope you'll share something that made you wrongly, incorrectly feel like a bad Asian. I mean, I'm Filipino, so, like, we're already bad Asians to begin with. To some degree, they're like, these Asians are, like, not regular Asians. (laughs) And then... I'm American. So, like, dude, I'm so bad Asian. So, check this out. So, like, I've produced a few films in the Philippines now. So, I've been going back and forth, and it's been part of my journey. I pivoted from Asian American filmmaking to this thing I, I coined New Asian Media. And New Asian Media is, uh, it's just borderless Asian media. So, I've, I've been for like the last 10 years out of Hawaii and whatnot. We we're doing Asian American films, and I was like, I wanted to cultivate our piece of the pie, 6%, 8%, wherever we're at, right? It's like, I want to cultivate my piece of pie. And someone's like in a meeting like, Dante, you're so American. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, Asian Americans are always about like their little piece of the pie. I'm like, okay. She's like, you got to look at the world. We are the pie. I went, what? And so ding, he's like, we are the pie. And I was like, I got to go to Asia. And then I started going into Asia and, and, and the idea of going, we need to connect all my friends here that are well-known filmmakers in front of and behind the camera Let's connect to the power base that is Asia, mm-hmm. which is the money. We're trying to build celebrity systems out here. Every single country has their own celebrity system. Manila, mainland China, Singapore, mm-hmm. Malaysia, Indonesia. Like, okay. Then now we started going into these countries and, you know, starting producing films out there and creating creating stuff. So now I'm in Manila, right? So I've done two out of Manila now. And I'm in Manila, my first film out there. And I'm a Filipino-American. They know me. I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm in the room with, like, one of the biggest— you know, studios out there. And, you know, everyone speaks English in Manila. Yeah. Until nobody's speaking English in Manila. (laughs) And I'm pitching one of the movies and they like it. I got the whole deck up there and then she's just like, Makano. And I look at her like, what? She's like, Makano. And I'm I'm looking around the room like, what am I doing? And I look at like my my other producers from there. She's like, how much? Oh, how much? (laughs) I'm going to learn that word. That That's word. That word. word I need to know. <laughs> I was like, damn, I, I got to know Meccano. Yeah, you should learn it a couple languages. I need to know that because when, when they're asking how much, I need to come out with a price. <laughs> yeah, I was not good. They're like, and so she looked at me and she's like, you don't speak Tagalog? I'm like, not, you know, not that much. And she looked at me. I said, I mean, I'm American. And she's like, you didn't date enough Filipino girls. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Oh, no. I said, like, you're probably right. I mean, I don't know. Wow, it's hilarious. I'm like, damn, you are really. You got roasted. I got roasted in the room, but they produced the movie. And I'm thankful. Hey. Shout what out other, to Shanna. What other kind of American is like expected to be fully, you know, bilingual? This thing about it is like, yeah, I feel bad because my friends that are Latino, they're like, they can speak. And I'm like, you yeah. don't speak anything? I'm like, I mean, I speak a little. But I'm speaking more as I'm go back, at least for our family. And like, think about Filipinos, like they're really into like fitting in. We're a colonized country, right? We got colonized by China. Then we got colonized by Spain for like hundreds of years. Then we got colonized by America for the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. So it's all about like 
fitting in. So by my time, like my grandparents after World War II came to America, it was like, you're American, be American. And so I think that I think it's changed yeah. now the way the, the landscape of how what it is now. Mm-hmm. And I wish we kind of held on some of our, our native tongues. But yeah, I feel that. Hey there. Do you have a bad Asian confession you want to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. We might even play it on the show. Hi, my name is Elliot. I grew up in Arcadia, California, which is a majority Asian suburb of Los Angeles. Uh, My bad Asian confession is that I didn't know whether my family spoke Cantonese or Mandarin. Uh, In second or third grade, my teacher asked the classroom if our family spoke any other languages at home. Arcadia schools are very Chinese, so most kids replied with Cantonese or Mandarin. When it was my turn to share, I said that I wasn't sure what they spoke. Both sounded like familiar terms. I just knew that it was some sort of Chinese. I remember my teacher being pretty surprised at my uncertainty. I went home to ask my older sister, what language do mom and dad speak? Is it Cantonese or Mandarin? My sister responded, they speak Cantonese, you idiot. I definitely never made that mistake again. That was probably the first time that I was introduced to the idea that there's a ton of nuance that goes into articulating and defining Chinese identity, especially for the broader diaspora. Thanks so much for creating the show. I look forward to every episode. I think you guys are great. Um, And I am a big fan of what you're both doing. I hope you are all staying safe and well. Thanks. Bye. Okay, that's it for episode 10 of our podcast. Thank you for listening. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Frank Xiong, and by Jen Yamato. Our senior producer is Rena Palta. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of Lina Anwar. Come back next week. We're going to talk to the actor Sung Kang. Just because the audience or the fans accept you does not mean the business accepts you because it's about money. It's, it's an old system. You're not friends. It's a business. You're a product. If you like Asian Enough, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, Reed Johnson, Shelby Grad, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalist at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. So stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. And remember, if you're famous, don't shoplift. Well, just don't shoplift anyway. Okay. I needed some isotoner gloves.